An Erios production. This is the Cardamom Pod, Kajal Magazine's culture podcast, hosted by me, Nadia Agrawal, and made in partnership with Erios Network. Last summer, we were marching in the streets. Despite the COVID pandemic, and partially because of it, cities were pouring out to protest the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Tony McDade, as well as the countless other Black men, women, and children who had been killed by the police. It felt like a promising time because of the sincere efforts of entire communities, which is a testament to the spirit of organizing. And it reached a fever pitch last summer. We had demilitarized zones, we had national conversations around defunding the police and what that could mean. We were really grappling, it felt like, with white supremacy as a concept and what it actually meant to our national infrastructure at large, how it operated in every level of government, in law enforcement and the military. It felt like a crescendo on a decade of protests that started with Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown up to the Keystone Pipeline, through Mauna Kea in Hawaii, through the Women's March, and the Muslim ban airport sit-ins. It felt like a coming together of community spirit and careful organizing. But then the corporations, businesses, and culture cashed in. It felt like there were so many companies who were posting memos to their Instagrams or to their Twitter accounts promising to be better, to hire more diversely, to donate generously, that they believe Black Lives Matter. And self-styled activists who dominated the social media airwaves with posts about what to say, how to say it, who to read, took up so much space in the national conversation. It felt like we were all part of some sort of book club where the discussion was in the comments section. This is what activist culture is. It's a sort of glossy, chic thing that simultaneously elevates the concept of activism to girl boss levels. And is also overly democratized so anyone can be one. And it unfortunately belays the reality of organizing. To people who might be outside of organizing circles or maybe even outside of big cities, there's sort of a blurriness around the concept of organizing and people think that organizers and activists are the same thing. But actually, organizing is a very deep and slow-moving progress sometimes. It requires lobbying government officials, going to city council meetings. It's not just standing in front of city hall with signs and bullhorns. Groups like DRUM, Equality Labs, Seek Coalition Salt, Saki for South Asian Women and Jahaji Sisters are really critical to South Asian organizing efforts specifically. There are nonprofits, of course, but these operate more like volunteer groups, largely with some paid staff that organize and activate around issues like housing discrimination, domestic violence, civic engagement, language justice, job training, education, and more. The reality is that groups like these are able to address the specific social justice needs of specific communities, even within the larger South Asian diaspora. Organizing is protest. But it is also the whole process by which change gets made. It means writing reports on demographic issues. It means sitting down with political leaders. It's not always Instagram friendly. 
Something that I've observed as a journalist is that there's a sort of collapsing of roles happening within activist culture. Often activists and sometimes organizers publish op-eds, or writers build their online brands through critical pieces about specific social issues. And sometimes people look to journalists as activists in their own right. But it has to be said that activists are not organizers, are not journalists. There is maybe movement between these roles, but there is also a critical need to keep them separate. We need all of these angles to tackle white supremacy, which is deeply entrenched at all levels. We know surveillance technology is being deployed across the country to amplify already vamped up programs that target black, brown, and Muslim people. We know that white supremacy is baked into American culture, that during the pandemic, funds are being kept from communities that desperately need food and basic resources, let alone health care and access to vaccines. These are deep issues that require people to play their part. When we start glossing over what all of these roles mean, all it does is lead to confusion about what's required of us. Yes, anyone can be an activist, but organizing is its own thing and requires its own level of respect. Media has a role to play. Organizers have a role to play. Activists might cross the boundaries of these two, but they too have a distinct role to play. And I say this because sometimes it feels like the confusion around these roles leads to confusion around the issues at hand. It leads to a flattening of the issue, so it feels like being an armchair activist, as sometimes people say, is all you need to do. All you need to do is repost something to your Instagram stories or retweet it or, I don't know, WhatsApp forward it to your friends, and then your job is done. But what we actually need to be doing is engaging in organizing efforts to the best extent that we can or supporting organizing efforts where they actually protest the way our municipal budgets are being spent or they actually take care to get signatures on petitions to make things happen at meta-local levels. I got a chance to speak with Sharman Hussein from Equality Labs about the work that she and her organization do when it comes to issues like this. We talk about surveillance of Muslim communities, we talk about anti-blackness and white supremacy at all levels of government and law enforcement, and we talk about what's needed for the culture at large to move forward and to actually make good on the racial reckoning we were promised. Be right back after the break. I don't want you anymore, but I'm blind. I wish that you were here. I'm here with Sharman Hossein. Sharman is a Bangladeshi American Muslim activist from Queens, New York. She is a co-founder of the Bangladeshi Feminist Collective, and she is also the political director of Equality Labs, which describes themselves as an Ambedkarite South Asian progressive power-building organization that uses community research, cultural and political organizing, popular education, and digital security to fight the oppressions of caste apartheid, Islamophobia, white supremacy, and religious intolerance. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I love y'all. Can you um, kick us off by telling us a little bit about what you do at Equality Labs? Yeah, I'm the political director of a national South Asian power building organization. And what we do is we really challenge the ways in which South Asian Americans have kind of been homogenized through the ways race, caste, and power has shown up in our communities. And so we organize our communities across the country and we fight for progressive policies. We do political education. We build stronger relationships between people and we hold each other in a progressive politic of care that wants to see, you know, immigration policy that 
helps our communities. We want to see climate change policy. We want Islamophobia and caste oppression to be addressed. So all of these issues are things that we work on and we do it through a Dalit and Bahujan liberation framework. And can you tell me what South Asian power building is? Yeah. Our membership as a national membership-based organization includes Dalit and Bahujan, Adivasi, Muslim, Buddhist, Sikh, and Christian South Asians that are practicing in the long tradition of Dalit and Bahujan movements. And what we do is we fight against caste oppression, and we also create stronger communities by building um, different working groups across the country. If people want to be on the defund the police committee in their city, they join that. Some activists have passed resolutions to condemn um, the Citizenship Amendment Act. We've had a lot of folks working on the ground to just build stronger communities. So we organize together, we learn together, and we, you know, before COVID, we're hanging out a lot and protesting. (laughs) Well, there's also been like so much to protest even during COVID. I feel like we're in such a crucible, Mm -hmm. it feels like politically at the moment. I mean, Okay, that's like such an understatement and an overstatement because we obviously have always been living in a crucible of political sentiment. But I'm really curious, Mm -hmm. especially looking back on maybe the past four years, what you really feel like in terms of all the work that you do. I would love to know how you feel like Islamophobia has really shaped the U.S. in the past four years, how white supremacy has really had a role in all of that. Yeah, I mean, we are talking in the aftermath of the insurgency at the Capitol a couple of, it feels like weeks, but I think it was less than two weeks ago. Um, And that, like, history is something that this country has been deeply enmeshed in for decades. So because of the investment in the military, the war on terror, and the growth of our policing, um, both locally and, you know, across the world, the United States is an Islamophobic empire that is violent towards all racial and cultural minorities. And it started with the surveillance of Black Muslims, and it grew into this deeply, deeply um, violent program that entraps, surveils, and attacks Muslims, you know, and our foreign policy is Islamophobic. Our communities, as a result, are Islamophobic. Our military budgets are Islamophobic. Um, So all of these policies have created a very violent, you know, um, society. And so activists who have been fighting against the surveillance of Muslims um, in New York City have talked about the ways white supremacists in this country have actually fueled right-wing networks, right? We were complaining about white supremacists like right after 9-11, you know, they were the ones that have attacked our churches, our mosques, our gurdwaras, right? They have such a violent history in this country. However, there is no funding and projects towards de-radicalizing these white supremacists who are destroying our communities, right? And so, you know, all of that energy and attention, the state put it towards Muslims. And so they spent billions of dollars to surveil us and trap us and attack us. However, there was this homegrown problem of white supremacy that was actually um, incubated in the military, right? And it, it, it's like growing rapidly in this country. So 
Yeah, all of those things are are things that Muslim activists have been really advocating for for years. And now we're seeing uh, uh, another wave of it, you know. Um, Yeah, I hope that answered your question. Yeah, it really just indicates to me as well that all of the issues that we're dealing with or that we're feeling like we're bearing witness to now are super interrelated. Like Mm -hmm. you were talking about how Islamophobia was incubated in the military. And I think, of course, Mm -hmm. anyone who witnessed last year would say, well, law enforcement has an issue with anti-blackness, with racism, like police brutality against Mm -hmm. black people is out of control. But so is Islamophobia. So is like nativism. So is like all kinds of racism and and, um, Mm -hmm. and religious intolerance. Like that also has made a home for itself in law enforcement. So all of these issues Mm -hmm. are super interrelated. And it just really pits against like people who look like us, people who you know, have, um, I guess, <laughs> have like different skin colors who come from different religious backgrounds. We're just sort of at, we're being placed at odds with major institutions in America. Yeah. And it's by design, it feels like. Absolutely. And, you know, more than that, the the ways in which policing is woven into every single um, experience that we as poor black and brown undocumented immigrants experience in this country. You know, those that are fighting for immigration, for health care, for the Green New Deal, those that are fighting for um, folks to not be evicted right now during the worst economic crisis we've seen in decades. Um, those people are the people that also recognize that we as a country spend billions of dollars on policing and the military and none of our problems are being solved. And if anything, they're increasing because when you fund policing, that means you're funding criminalization. So I do think that this conversation around being intersectional South Asians that are actually fighting for communities of care that are rooted in these like ideas of like, whether it be democratic socialism or ideas of like community funds that are going to support our hospitals, our schools, you know, those are the things that South Asians need to be fighting for. And we need to like, not just write about it. We actually need to support progressive policies, electeds and organizers to do that work for the long haul. It's interesting that you talk about sort of South Asians fighting for more leftist radical causes, more causes that really care for the community at the at the ground level, you know, not top down necessarily policies. Mm-hmm. When we just saw Kamala Harris get sworn in as vice president, and in a lot of ways for me at least, I feel like Kamala Harris is a representation of sort of entrenched establishment Democrat, you know, sense of progress, which is like, yes, it is a very big deal mm-hmm. that she is the first black woman, the first South Asian woman, the first woman, woman (laughs) in her Mm -hmm. position. But she also represents a lot of the things that are wrong in America, especially with her prosecutorial background. Like what she promises as a symbol is different from what she promises in real life. Yeah. You know, there are over 6 million South Asian people in the United States. Out of those 6 million, over like overwhelming majority of them are upper caste Indian Americans that have been able to migrate here because of their caste privilege. And Kamala Harris's family is from that her, um, that heritage, you know, of caste privilege, Brahmin, um, dominant caste networks that migrate here and succeed and are fulfilling the American dream. And so I do think that that layer of analysis is what we have to look at this moment through. Um, I think it's um, wild that during a, a national uprising, a global uprising against policing, Joe Biden decided to pick a prosecutor as his running mate. 
And so I do think that there's so much to say about this country and the way in which this moment of um, uh, mass unemployment, economic violence, people are hungry right now because they can't afford food and they can't work right? These are the things that our country is um, looking at itself in the mirror, you know? And that just means that we also have to see those in power as those that are going to protect the wealthy in order to keep their privilege and their power. And so, you know, grassroots organizers, we know that politicians are not going to save us. What we do also know is that we have a right to demand what the government must provide in order for us to survive. We have a right to raise hell. We have a right to vote you out. And we actually are really um, motivated by fighting against fascism. And that's what we saw this last November, that millions of people will cast a ballot to fight white supremacist terror, um, even during a pandemic where it was unsafe to vote. You know, so all to say, I, I do think that this moment is, you know, as James Baldwin and so many other prolific American writers have said, it's like the chicken is coming to roost, right? Like, it, like it, it's it, it's exposing itself. It really shows me as well that there really is no middle path here. There is no like, oh, no. I can just vote for Biden. <laughs> I can just vote for Harris and my job mm-hmm. is done. It's like, no, well, now that they're in office, we have to start putting our demands to them. And start telling them, like, this is why we voted for you. And if you don't do this, we're going to figure out another solution to this problem. Like, they're going to be part of the problem at that yeah. point. Yeah, and, and we lived through Obama and we saw what happened to our communities. We saw how Ferguson happened under Obama and how many Muslims were droned and attacked. Um, you know, how many Kurdish people, Baluchi, like, we, the list goes on and on and on, right? And so I do think that our movements live in a radical hope of a society that is going to turn on itself and needs to be turned um, in order for radical shift to happen. And you're right, there is no middle ground because the middle is actually just pushing more funding and more power to those that have power, Um, you know? So we don't want that. We actually want people to be able to survive without working. People should not have to work in order to feed themselves. Like that's the society we want, right? Completely. I I think I really, really noticed this, especially just like the sort of the cynicism and the irony and just the sort of the sheer amount of pain after last year, after the summer. Like, I mean, I don't think anyone could have read the story of Breonna Taylor and not been incensed over it. It was completely awful. It was inhumane. It was deranged in so many ways. Mm-hmm. But I think it's also important mm-hmm. to realize that after she was killed by the police, the city that she lived in voted to increase the police budget by $750,000 and decrease the library, the public library budget, by 775000 or 725000 something comparable. So basically, like... That's atrocious, yeah. Like, yeah, it's yeah. just we're de- we're literally like defunding the lifeblood of our communities in order to prop up a bloated institution that doesn't even take care of all of us and is actually mad dog like going after all of us. Yeah. So it's yeah. it's just it's hard to like see all those things and not be cynical. I think, and I think this is definitely a time to like not sit back 
on our laurels and like think that it's just gonna work itself out because now we've done the hard part of electing people yeah i mean that happened in new york city as well you know we have a city council that voted to um keep the new york city police department's budget and they have like an over 11 billion dollar budget right that's only um getting more and more as folks like de blasio and other establishment democrats um continue to to support the police more than they support our community and so these are the the ways that we remember that we have to organize at every level you know we have to be able to organize locally to get um our money back to our communities and then we have to organize like meta locally where we are making sure that our neighbors are fed and that um the teachers in our neighborhood are taken care of you know like the amount of work like this country people are are supporting each other this government is not supporting us right yeah i i wanted to go back for a minute to the conversation around the insurgency the insurrection that happened in the capital at the top of january um there was definitely a conversation that was brewing online mostly from what i could tell in the newspapers and stuff about whether we should start calling people who are responsible for crimes like that that endanger americans that endanger people in this country uh domestic terrorists and I think that there was a lot of virtue signaling in that conversation, at least from where I could sit or where I could see about like just how people have woken up to the fact that we have maligned Muslim people, brown skin people as terrorists since 9-11. Mm-hmm. Um, and we haven't really extended that same courtesy to people who actually commit violence um, yeah. against Americans. So I was really curious what your take was on that whole conversation. Yeah, I think we have to examine the domestic terrorism framework because these anti-terrorism initiatives treat white supremacy in its most exceptional form, right? And instead of looking at the violence of institutionalized racism, right, of institutionalized policing, the the anti-terrorism initiatives in this country are designed to just move more money into the police. So that type of program will not fight white supremacy because ultimately we are spending more and more money into institutions of policing. So those proposed solutions from the state do not address white supremacy. So whether or not you call someone a domestic terrorist, under that we have to look at the legislation, the risks that activists have taken within Black Lives Matter networks and how they were treated as domestic terrorists in this country, right? Look at the indigenous water protectors, right? Right? Like what happened to them under the state. And so that I think is the crux of this question. You know, it's it's beyond titles. It's about the ways in which prosecution and litigation is passed to either protect folks like these white supremacist intersect, uh, insurrectionists or um, criminalize further black, brown and Muslim organizers. Right. Yeah, I think it's so damning as well that there isn't a sort of body, a governmental body that is tasked with looking at white supremacists and like, mm-hmm. you know, the far right militant groups or anything like that. And like, but even even after we've seen for four years, the major uptick in crimes perpetuated by white nationalists, mm-hmm. like we saw the Charleston rally, mm-hmm. we saw what happened in the Capitol, and there just isn't a movement towards dealing with it effectively like you said de-radicalizing these groups or because if you were to talk about white supremacy for real you'd have to look at the police and the military right Mm -hmm. and i don't think that the country is is ready to look at 
the, the governing body of our cities and how it is um, deeply entrenched institutionalized white supremacy that we need to fight. Yeah, there are white supremacists who are police officers or at least white supremacist sympathizers even. Mm-hmm. Like whatever degree you want to look at, they exist in our institutions at very high levels where they can actually enact violence against marginalized communities and they do mm-hmm. with impunity. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it, it is, you're right. It would be hard to, we would have to grapple with that. We would have to grapple with our history, which we know America is in- incapable of doing, it feels like. Mm-hmm. And it would be a much larger project than just going after Muslim teenagers. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, Sharman, this has been such a great conversation. Super illuminating. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Where can our listeners find you online? You can find me at Sharman Ocha on Instagram and Twitter. The Cardamom Pod is made by Kajal Magazine in partnership with Erios Network. Aziza Deep is our producer with help from Jivika Verma. Our music is by Thasneem from their EP, Just Before the World Ends. Until next time, keep an eye out for evil eyes. Powered by ACAST.